Okay, can everyone hear me? Somebody hear me? Brad, can you wave at me if you can hear me? You're the only one I can actually see. Thank you. Perfect. Um, it occurred to me after I, uh, Carissa asked me for a title for this first message, and I hadn't actually thought of a title. I'd thought of a series title, Beyond the Belly of the Will and Into the Heart of God, but I hadn't thought of a series title. And it occurred to me after I gave it to her, it was called The Sourpuss Prophet, that uh, given the way we're doing things, we could have a title, The Sourpuss Prophet, written through the center of the screen, and then my name under it, which uh, wouldn't look very good. But anyways, I hope that's not thought. Um, we are going to jump, as Brad said, into Jonah. We're kind of in a transitional time here in the church because uh, two, three weeks today, we will be in the first Sunday of Lent. And uh, Curtis will be looking for us at the fourth chapter of Jonah. And we will see there how the book of Jonah really does prepare us very well for, for Lent. Uh, this morning, I'm going to look at the first two chapters of Jonah, and mostly actually I'm going to be expositing for us the first chapter of Jonah and focusing on that. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Jonah chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, and as you're finding that in your Bibles, it's a tiny little book, incredibly poetic. Um, it's squeezed between Obadiah and Micah in the Old Testament. Um, as you're finding that, let me just say that I, whatever else Jonah is, this book is a parable for the church today. The word Jonah or the name Jonah means, it, it means dove. And who was God's dove? Well, as you learn from the Song of Solomon and Hosea, Israel was God's dove. And so there's whoever Jonah the prophet actually was in real time, he also is a representative figure of Israel as a whole. As a whole. And of course, given that the church is now the new Israel of God, um, it's a picture of us. And so always remember that as we look at this book together. I'm going to read Jonah chapter one. Beloved, listen to God's word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. 
but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And he answered me, from the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep in the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almost everybody, whether they are churchgoers or not, have heard of Jonah. Jonah was the guy to be gobbled down by a massive man-eating fish, right? Jonah was the chap to be swallowed whole by a walloping whale and live there for three days and three nights eating who knows what. Almost everybody has heard of this Jonah and his whale of a tale. His adventure with the whale has sparked wonder and controversy, amazement and ridicule. Could it be? Is it possible? As I read on the internet, one elementary teacher and a little girl disputed Jonah's adventure with the whale as they talked about the largest mammal whales in their class. The teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human being because even though they are indeed very large mammals, they have really small throats. But the little girl insisted, the Bible says it, I believe it. Jonah was swallowed by the whale. The teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human being. It is impossible. The little girl said, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonah. Then a little cruelly, the teacher asked, yes, but what if Jonah went the other way? The little girl thought for a moment and then replied, then you ask him. But saints, the wonder and meaning of the Jonah story is not found in arguments of whether Jonah was really gulped down by a gargantuan fish or not. We will not find our growth and maturity in Christ and our meaning as God's people in this world by examining the belly of Jonah's whale or other such interesting but secondary questions. Rather, the meaning of this story is founding something much bigger, deeper, and greater than the prophet consuming fish. It's found in the story itself. A story about a wicked city, a rebellious runaway prophet, a bunch of burly sailors, and most of all, a God who loves them all with an insane otherworldly kind of love. Yes, this story of Jonah, which is indeed so masterfully written, it's a picture worth a thousand words that gives us a prolonged glimpse into the hard heart of a prophet named Jonah and the soft heart of his God named Yahweh. 
It's a picture indeed that takes us beyond the belly of the whale and into the heart of God. And I hope that this glimpse will cause us to look inside our own hearts and see that Jonah, Jonah is not so far away from us. And then to look to God and stand dumbfounded once again by his amazing, unfaltering and patient love. His love that reaches wider than our shoulders, wider than the narrow limits of our imaginations, wider than the small worlds we inhabit, and even wider than our impatience for the rebellion, faults, and wickedness we see in others. Let's look at the story together. We are told at the opening of our text that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and God tells him, quote, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. The word that has come to Jonah is the beginning of the end for Jonah. These words make Jonah stand in some pretty prickly shoes. Because do you hear what disdainful task God is calling him to do? The Ninevites, of all the wretched things to be called to do. Go and preach to that wicked and detestable nation that he and all Israel hates. Absolutely despicable. Go to those blacklisters. Jonah would rather eat worms. You see, friends, God is calling Jonah to go and preach, or more literally, as the Hebrew says, to cry out to a people whom, when Jonah is honest with himself, he would rather see burn and smolder in the fires of God's judgment. He would rather see them go to that other place. But hold on a second, we might say. Don't get so excited, Jonah, because isn't God's calling to Jonah to, quote, cry out against the Ninevites, a very call to announce God's judgment against them? And the answer is yes, it actually most certainly is. Well, then come on, aren't we reading the text wrong here? Shouldn't it read instead that, quote, Jonah responded to God's call with great glee and excitement because at last the destruction of Nineveh was going to be announced. So he went, stood on their corner with a sign that read, die and be gone, 316, and cried with secret delight and cadence, Nineveh doomed at last, watch and see it blast. After all, this is exactly what we see Jonah doing later in the story in chapter three, verse four, when he preached the worst sermon the world has ever heard. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. But no, Jonah does not go to the Ninevites in delight. We are told instead that Jonah runs away. But why? Why does Jonah run away from preaching the Ninevites' destruction when it is that very destruction he would like best to see? Saints, the overarching and unmistakable message of this entire book we call the Bible contains the answer to that question. It is an answer that is at once our single greatest hope and our single greatest challenge as a people who are often only concerned with defending ourselves and staring at our own belly buttons. Jonah runs away and flees in the opposite direction from Nineveh because even though he is a fool thinking he can run away from God, in some ways, Jonah, like many of us sitting here, is a very good theologian. That's right. As upside down as that sounds, Jonah runs be precisely because he's a good theologian. And Jonah is a really good theologian, you see, not because he practices what he preaches, nor because he is born from good prophetic stock, nor because he has all the answers to life's most difficult and mysterious questions. No, Jonah is a good theologian because he knows the fundamental and scandalous thing about God that we must all come to learn if we are to know the most basic mind-bending and revolutionizing truth that the whole Bible reveals about our glorious God and most clearly in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's this, the Lord 
God, the only God, is not only unapproachably holy, he is also wildly loving. Yes, as the Apostle John will later summarize, wonder of wonders, despite our unworthiness and sin, God is love. And God is love toward us. Wow. You see, Jonah has learned from his Hebrew classes that Yahweh, the only true God, is not like the pagan gods of gold and stone, who are frequently as insecure as they are impotent and as unpredictable as they are temperamental. Yes, Jonah remembers what the Lord has revealed about himself, that greatly mysterious and undeniable truth that shows itself in sunshine and daily bread and the giving of life to the spiritually dead. As he will say later, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. What a scandal. Jonah hates the Ninevites. And Jonah knows that when God calls a prophet to go and cry out against a nation, God has not called that prophet for nothing. Just as he has not called the whole nation of Israel, his dove, his Jonah, to be his people for nothing. And just as he has not called the church of Jesus Christ together today for nothing. God has called the church today, as he called Israel, as he called Jonah, to be a blessing to the world by being like God to the world. And here calling wicked people out of their pain and sin-filled lives and back into right relationship with God so that they might receive the forgiveness and acceptance of the God who, as St. Peter says, desires none to be lost. Friends, Jonah fails at being who he is supposed to be and doing what he is supposed to do as God's chosen instrument of communication to the Ninevites. And he fails because he knows that God's very call on him to cry out against the Ninevites is not a verdict of condemnation, as he would like, but it is a direct invitation for them to repent and receive God's mercy and compassion. Jonah hates the Ninevites, and it gives him a stomach ulcer to think that God loves them and wants to use him, Jonah, to seek their salvation. And we really need to see this if we're going to see the wonder of the message today. So let me underline Jonah does not want to go to the Ninevites, not because he prefers southern voyages over northern ones, nor because he prefers western treks over eastern ones. Jonah does not want to go to the Ninevites and cry out against them because he's afraid. Yes, afraid that the very purpose of his existence as a prophet might be fulfilled. He's afraid that God might actually open their eyes. God might actually unstop their ears through his message. God might soften their hardened souls and pierce their armored hearts with his relentless arrows of grace. And they might repent and be forgiven. And this is not something Jonah wants because although he loves the mercy of God for himself, Jonah disdains the mercy of God for others. Now, if we mistakenly believe that salvation depends on us, and stopped at this point in the story with Jonah succeeding in his pursuit of Tarshish, we might well begin to despair the possibility of salvation. But this story is not meant to make us despair the salvation of the world or our own souls. It's quite the opposite, really. Because, friends, beloved sisters and brothers, this story speaks hope to us. Because as the rest of it shows us so powerfully now, God is in complete control and God is scandalously loving. And that means that nothing can stop the king of heaven from loving you, me, and all those in the world whom he chooses, just as he loved Jonah, the sailors, the Ninevites, without, as we see, 
losing any single one of them. Just look at how amazingly God responds to and uses Jonah's various runaway attempts to achieve his loving will. First, a storm. Jonah tries to run away from God by creating physical distance between himself and the place where God wants him. But as we read, then the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Perhaps Jonah skipped over learning the truth of Psalm 139 in Bible classes. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence, O Lord? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jonah learns that he can't escape God by traveling across the sea because God surely does reign sovereign over all the forces of nature and is in all places at all times as the sea storm shows. So he changes his runaway tactic, trying instead in his second attempt to tune God out. That's right. Jonah tries to flee from God by taking a mighty power nap during the storm. Talk about a heavy sleeper. As we read, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they hurled the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now, even though God has gotten the sailors' attention and begun teaching them that, the only true, that only the true God has power to save them, as they pray to their false gods to no avail and hurl their cargo overboard without relief, Jonah shows that he is still unmoved by God's advances. And we can quite honestly say that this storm snorer prophet is literally unmoved. So God responds with another type of storm, kind of. You see, God now sends a seething sea captain with wind in his jaws to go and wake Jonah up. And it's actually a comically ironic picture. God sent the prophet Jonah to cry out against the pagan Ninevites, and now he sends the pagan captain to wake up Jonah and tells him to cry out to God. Ooh, how that must have pricked Jonah's pride. How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. But Jonah does not get up and pray as a good prophet of God should get up and pray. He does not pray so that the God whom the psalmist declare is, quote, mightier than the thunder of the waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, will indeed perhaps hear him and stop the raging of the seas and save the boat and the petrified sailors. Not at all. We don't know if Jonah said, nah, I don't think so, guys. My, guy, my God and I are having a bit of a standoff here. Go fish. Or whether he said something else. But it seems clear that Jonah is once again reforming his runaway strategy this time by allowing his heart to get just a little harder in his refusal to pray. But as we are coming to expect, this third attempt doesn't work either. God responds this time by using the sailors' lots to bring Jonah to justice. And even more than that, God uses Jonah's answer to the sailors' theory of questions to cast more light into the sailors' hearts in their journey to faith in the true God. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Jonah's declaration of the true God terrifies the sailors. Now, if it is true, as the Proverbs says it is, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then it seems that these terrified sailors are well on their way to knowing God, who is the fountainhead of wisdom. And as we see, the sailors do actually become wiser as they now know who to blame and shame for the calamity that has befallen them. They ask Jonah, what have you done? What have you done? 
And we can almost hear a couple more exasperated questions of disbelief and disgust coming from the sailors at this point. Jonah, are you seriously a blasted buffoon? You serve the God of the sea? The sea? There's this life-threatening storm about to kill us. We've just thrown all the cargo overboard and you, you were just downstairs sleeping and you're not now on your knees willing, wailing to God on our behalf? Are you completely nuts? Do you care, Jonah, for no one but yourself? And then they do ask him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And you can be sure that they made him talk. No running away from God and no running away from a bunch of terrified, brawny and windblown sailors whom you've just caused a great deal of grief in a storm and lost valuables. Jonah's answer to them is a fourth runaway attempt. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. There's been a lot of hurling. God hurled the wind. The sailors hurled their cargo. Perhaps the sailors hurled their breakfast over the edge. And now Jonah figures, hurling. Yes, hurling. This will be my successful runaway from God. Hurl me into the sea and let me die. God responds to this final runaway attempt by putting an end to the running. And while God will not allow Jonah to get the death he wants, he will get a good heave-ho over the edge. And so after the sailors, who clearly have a better sense of the sanctity of human life and an appropriate fear of God than Jonah does, after the sailors, notice, try to spare Jonah's life by rowing him back to land, but are stopped by God's winds of opposition, God allows Jonah to be hurled into the stormy seas below. And what is perhaps the most hilarious and telling picture at this point of what this whole story is about, friends, is that it is only after the prophet of God, whose very vacation it is to bring people back to God, it is only then when Jonah is gone that the sailors come to dedicate their lives to God. As we read, O Lord, Yahweh, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. After this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And as for Jonah, well, the hurling does not turn out the way Jonah had hoped, just like everything else he has tried. No, all Jonah's runaway attempts have failed because God is in control of the wind. God is in control of the sailors. God is in control of the lots. And yes, God is even in control of big fish who seem to have a particular penchant for rebellious runaway prophets. Yes, saints, God is also in control of giving giant fish the munchies for sourpuss fugitive Hebrews. And so with Jonah in the belly of the whale, the first chapter, which is the first section of Jonah, comes to an end. And we've learned a great deal about the self-centeredness, failure, and hatred of Jonah on the one hand, and the universal, patient, and creative love of God on the other. And the second chapter with Jonah's prayer, which is a pastiche of all the Psalms, by the way. You prick Jonah and he bleeds the Bible. He bleeds the Bible. He's very pious. But notice that Jonah, while he thanks God for the deliverance and salvation that God has given him, Jonah does not want this same deliverance and salvation for others. He is a selfish prophet. He wants to keep the universal God, his tribal deity. So at the end of it, 
we have indeed learned that this story of Jonah and his whale takes us beyond the belly of the whale and into the heart of God. Notice a couple of things. The Hebrew word great is used seven times, exactly seven times in the first chapter alone. The personal name for God, Yahweh, is used no less than 12 times in the first chapter alone. Are you given the distinct impression like I am that we are meant to realize that what is truly great here in this story is not Jonah or the sailors or the wind or the fish or anything else, but the power and love of God. The author works very hard to give us this impression. You see, God sent Jonah up to do great things, great things a prophet of God should love to do as an instrument and agent of God's mission to the world so that people may know his mercy and grace and sweet embrace rather than his wrath. But Jonah goes down in disobedience to Joppa, down in disobedience into the ship for Tarshish, down below deck, down to sleep, and finally down into the sea and into the belly of the whale. His trajectory is all downward. He is sent north, but he goes south. He is called to be the light of the world, but he chooses instead the darkness of the hull of a ship. He is called to be the salt of the earth, but the only thing salty is the seawater underneath that Tarshish-bound boat. Jonah fails at everything he is called to. He fails to be who he is called to be. He fails to do what he is called to do. But here is the truly great thing about this story. Jonah has been an absolute failure. And yet, the Ninevites will be reached, the sailors have been saved, and Jonah himself, the rebellious runaway prophet, rests safely in the belly of that whale. And the author makes it clear why things have turned out so nicely and cleverly captures it in the first three words of the last sentence of the first chapter. But the Lord. Yes, but the Lord hurled some great wind, but the Lord directed some lots, and but the Lord gave a great fish a peculiar craving for a prune-faced prophet. The Lord has directed all events like the master, master cosmic conductor that he is, so that all things would work out for the best according to the inscrutable love of God. Yes, but the Lord from beginning to end because of the scandalous, unbounded, and universal love of God for all peoples of all colors, of all stripes, shapes, and sizes. However, in addition to giving us a breathtaking depiction of the unplumbed love of God, this Jonah story also leaves us with a challenge. You see, beloved of God, it has been made abundantly clear to us in this first chapter that being chosen to be God's missionaries in this world, to be God's church, is a privilege given to us for us and not a dependency need on God's part, as if God had such needs. Salvation is 100% from beginning to end God's doing. And the fact that God chooses to use you and me and chooses to use us together as a church is more about God's love for us than God's need for our help. As a result, we are to see that this Jonah story is more about God inviting us into the life of God's love and God's missionary heart, even though he doesn't need us. And that beyond being impossible, it is foolish for us to run away from this invitation. The challenge then is this. Will we join him willingly? Will we allow God's father heart to become our heart? Will we go where he sends us? Or to pick up on chapter two, will we allow the gratitude of God's deliverance of us 
to push, out, push us out into the world to seek the deliverance of those whom we may not like very much, to seek their forgiveness, that they may know the deliverance of God just as we have known it, and to rejoice in this. People of God, if you have not heard a word this morning, please hear this. God has not called and created us for Tarshish as his church. He's created us for Nineveh. And it is Jesus and not Jonah who has shown us in the most powerful and heart-cracking way what the love of God looks like when that love is wearing human flesh. You see, as I've tried to capture it in a poem by juxtaposing the ministry of Jonah to the ministry of Jesus, consider this. Jonah was anxious to die, to escape those he found so grim, but Jesus was willing to die for the world who hated him. Jonah ran away and fled from God's extra woeful call, but Jesus said to his father, let your will be all in all. Jonah ran away and fled because God's love was sure to be sown, but Jesus came exactly because he wanted to make love known. Jonah slept through a storm for him and then refused to pray, but Jesus slept and showed his God by making the winds obey. Jonah's guilt was shown and called by God's sovereign use of a lot, but Jesus' purity was clear in all he lived and taught. Jonah welcomed the stormy waves, escaped love by seeking death, but Jesus embraced the bloody cross to give us new life and breath. Jonah went down in a belly in the whale where God made him room, but Jesus went down in the belly of death and rose to make it a womb. One final thought. It has been 100 years since the Titanic went down. I was reading an essay by Daniel Mendelssohn in The New Yorker, which was exploring why this event has been a story of endless fascination for journalists and for us generally. There were a lot of reasons that he pointed to. He said, you know, because of the human pride, this was claimed to be an unsinkable ship. It turned out to be very much sinkable. It gave us a window into the privilege of the rich over the poor. The rich were saved, but the poor were left to drown. It gave us a window into the horrors of people freezing out there on the ice and those who watched them. All of these things were topics of fascination. But there is one aspect of the going down of the Titanic, Mendelssohn points out, that's absolutely mystified historians and journalists ever since it happened. And that is this, that there was another ship called the Californian only 10 miles away from the Titanic that just sat there the whole night, completely disregarding all of the Titanic's frantic signaling. And this has never been sufficiently explained. Why did the Californian, a mere 10 miles away, do nothing? Why did it just sit there when it could have helped? Mendelssohn resolves that it was, quote, the immovable resistance of sheer stupidity. Here's a question. What will be said of the church, of Willoughby Church, in 100 years from now, or of us as individual Christians? Will the church of future ages or even the world look back and when they saw, when we saw the world sinking and drowning and freezing in sin, will it say that we acted, that we proclaimed the gospel with courage, that we did what we could and the wisdom that we had? Or will they say, look, another Californian stuck in the immovable resistance of sheer stupidity. Let me offer a prayer. Lord God, we know that you have better things for us in the way that you want to use us in this world. We ask once again 
that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us with your empowering presence so that we may be a beacon of light, that we may be saltiness in a world that has lost its saltiness. That Lord, when we, as we see in the book of Acts, proclaim that Jesus is Lord, proclaim a message about repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that you would go before us, moving in hearts, penetrating them like you penetrated the Ninevites, Lord, so that they may know you, they may turn around, and they may be given new life. We thank you for this incredible dignity that you have given us, that you have invited us to share your love with this world. Not only have you given us of your love, O Lord, and we have tasted it and seen it, but you've given us the mission of sharing it with the world. Help us to be able to do this in our day as well. And during this COVID-19, Lord, uh, 19 time where we're finding ourselves as the sent ones in more ways than we would like. Um, we can't gather bodily as we would love to. And this, Lord, is, um, is a bleak substitute sometimes, as many of us feel. But help us then, during this time, to embrace the fact that you are sending us. You're sending us to the neighbors next door. You're sending us to those who are lonely, who are wounded, who um, are struggling with mental illness and other things. Um, give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.